Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or physician and you're interested in scaling from clinician to CEO, what? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. October 11th through 13th in beautiful Scottsdale, Arizona. It's a two-day event full of technical knowledge to take your business to the next level. Our scaling from clinician to CEO event is aimed at those wanting to build a group practice, but you don't know what you don't know. This is your conference. Over two days at the beautiful Phoenician Resort in Scottsdale, we're going to cover topics like your personal transition from a clinical role to a leadership role, how to buy and build practices correctly, assembling the correct legal, accounting, equity, and operational structures for growth, systematizing processes between multiple locations, creating a more valuable business, and a whole heck of a lot more. As many of you know, our partner in crime for this entire event, just as he was last year at the first annual Scaling from Clinician to CEO event, is Dr. Mark Costas of the Dental Success Institute. I recently appeared on Dr. Costas's Dentalpreneur podcast, where we talked a little bit about the conference, we talked a lot about the industry, we talked a good bit about change, and even some about the rising cost of debt in terms of valuations. It was a wide ranging interview, it was a lot of fun to do, and judging from some of the response that he got from his audience, it was pretty well received. So, without further ado, here is that same interview. Me and Dr. Mark Costas off of his podcast, for you, our Group Practice Accelerator audience. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Dentalpreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Costas. What's up, guys? I hope you're doing great. Hope your day has gone well so far. No matter where you're listening to this, I hope uh, you are being equally productive and not just sitting there uh, listening to my voice drone on and on and on. Hopefully it's in the gym, maybe walking your dog. Maybe my favorite thing to do is do the dishes because I get some husband points by doing the dishes and clearing the table when actually I have a single AirPod in and I'm catching up with my content. So I look like the good guy and uh, I get to spend time with some of my favorite podcasters. Hopefully you're doing something like that. All right, guys, today I am super happy that I get to re-welcome one of our very, very popular guests, a multiple multiple time um, guest on the Dentalpreneur podcast, multiple time um, guest on our stages, and that is my friend Perrin Desports. A little bit about Perrin. He is one of the co-founders of Polaris Health Corp Care Partners. He attended Washington and Lee University for undergrad and earned his MBA from Darla Moore School of Business at the University of South Carolina. Perrin has over 25 years of experience in the business side of dentistry, having started as a fourth-generation family member of Thompson Dental Company, then as a general manager of 15 years with Patterson Dental Supply, where he ran three different businesses for them. In 2017, he left Patterson and along with two others launched Tusk Partners. In 2021, he and DeWalker Sinha departed to launch Polaris. Perrin is happily married and has an eight-year-old daughter at home. In his spare time, he's an avid cyclist, tennis player, enjoys cooking and reading, and loves good red wine and strong coffee. 
And I know there's some other cocktails in there that you and I have frequented at certain steakhouses that you enjoy as well. Welcome to the podcast, buddy. How you doing? I'm great, Mark. It's good to be back with you again. Thanks for having me on this afternoon. Looking forward to our conversation for sure. As always, as always, man. So you've had a busy summer and a busy 2023. Um, you recently spoke on stage and brought the house down at our 2023 10th Annual Dental Success Summit in San Antonio, Texas. Um, really, really good stuff happening for you. Uh, I always like to chat with you just kind of about um, what you're seeing in the marketplace. You see some pretty large transactions and uh, a pretty high vol volume of large transactions, all things DSO, all things small groups, uh, regional groups, uh, et cetera. I would love just to start off by getting just a little summary of what you're seeing in 2023. It is it is a unique market uh, with interest rates going up significantly. Um, maybe just that, that general kind of sweeping uh, summary of what you're seeing in the marketplace. And I have some more specific kind of uh, questions that I want to ask you. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to happy to try to <laughs> to try to keep it concise. This is a strange um, uh, period that we're in right now, and I, I you know, the the rise of rates um, uh, as quickly as they have have caught out um, a lot of businesses um, in their debt structure, and and dentistry is no different. You know, when a private equity group. Uh, backs any entity, uh, they lever the businesses with debt to make their equity investment go a lot further. And the the reason they do that is because usually they can build a bigger, more successful, more valuable business, capitalize on it on the recap of the business. So mm -hmm. the cost of the debt funds to them, um, especially in a very low rate environment is negligible and you can aggregate a lot of practices in a hurry. And we have seen that coming out of COVID, even going back pre-COVID, honestly. Um, uh, but, you know, with bank funding being at historically low rates and everybody seemingly having access to those debt funds, it makes the investment dollar go a lot further. And what, you, what you've seen is that there are a lot of enterprise, private equity-backed enterprise-level groups that have been very aggressive in their business strategy um, acquisition predominantly. Uh, and bought a lot of practices and arguably might have might have slightly overpaid on some of the multiples that they justified, regardless of deal structure uh, of the transaction itself. Mm -hmm. But what that means is that when the rates correct and they start rising precipitously, now we move from an aggregator model to what's known as an operator model. And a lot of those uh, businesses that were not as well constituted are are ones that were simply relying on aggregating volumes of EBITDA and then making their their bank on the flip. And when rates rise that much that quickly, and you're using a debt structure that is uh, predominantly akin to an interest only type of a loan structure, you get caught out really, really quickly. So it impacts the ability um, to justify um, uh, higher EBITDA multiples on acquisitions because debt cost of debt funds is rising really quickly. And if you are not able to operate the business in a way to generate same store sales and EBITDA margin expansion, now uh, you're going to get crushed under the burden of rising interest rates and an escalating cost of the debt that you cannot control. Mm -hmm. If you talk to any of the 
I'll say like uh, bellwether law firms, uh, you know, the names we all know and love that we see speaking at a lot of conferences and, and everything. And, and you don't ask them about M&A activity, um, but you ask them about workout activity. They will tell you that um, they are experiencing volumes of workout processes um, at the top end of the food chain like they've never seen before. And what that means is that usually the private equity sponsor of these businesses um, that grew too quickly, uh, took on too much debt, couldn't get operational growth and EBITDA expansion, has seen their equity value basically go to zero. And at that point, they're trying to figure out ways to turn the asset over to the bank and walk away from it. And that is happening in the market. Yeah, that is happening at the top end of the food chain, and it's not a good thing. Um, so what does that mean? That means that um, as the, the cost of funds is high, um, uh, people acquiring businesses are going to be a lot more uh, uh, judicious about what they're willing to pay, how they're able to justify the EBITDA multiple that they're willing to pay, um, uh-huh. and or there is going to be less available debt funding um, for acquisitions, period. So we talk about rising rates a lot, but one of the things we don't talk about nearly enough is a contracting credit box. And I'll give you a specific example that's pretty easy to follow. Um, I happen to have a good friend who is uh, the CEO of a private equity-backed regional DSO on the East Coast, about a $20 million business, um, very well run, uh, very disciplined in their acquisition strategy. I was talking with him about what he was experiencing and he said, yeah, the rates are, are one thing, but the other challenge is the fact that our lender uh, ratcheted down their debt to EBITDA multiple by about a turn and a half. I sat there and I thought to myself for a second, okay, wait a minute. You're, you've got a business that generates probably around $20 million in EBITDA and your lender is decreasing the amount of volume they're willing to loan you by about a turn and a half. So a turn and a half on $20 million of EBITDA volume is... $30 million of available debt funding that just went up in smoke. Whoa. And when you see that, yeah. So just so, think, and this is a, this is a group a, that acquires traditional general dentistry practices predominantly. Mm-hmm. So you and I both know the revenue volume of those types of businesses. And you and I both know rough valuations of those businesses. Mm-hmm. And when you haircut that type of business development strategy by $30 million of available capital, that limits a lot of your options very, very quickly. So it's not just the multiple that we see maybe coming back to earth slightly, but it's also the volume of activity and it's the jeopardy at the top end of the food chain. And all of that together is the exact opposite of what we saw coming out of COVID, which was people spending like drunken sailors. Um, And that's gonna create quite a different M&A market than we've seen in recent past um, and it's going to create um, uh, a lot of challenges around people who are aggregators and not operators. So I'll take a pause there. That's probably more than what you bargained for, but no, that's that's great. And and this is this is kind of a topic of discussion that I've had with lots of people on and off the air. And this this whole idea of aggregator versus operator is interesting to me. Um, so as an aggregator that has basically this pot unlimited pot, refillable pot of money. Um, An effective strategy in the past has been uh, to focus more on acquisition and buying more EBITDA, 
basically. So the faster you could buy EBITDA within your recap cycle, the faster you could repackage this thing and say, we went from $15 million in EBITDA to $40 million in EBITDA. Thank you very much. I'll take four extra turns on that. And that was working just fine for a period of time. Now you're saying that the operator that takes their eye off the ball and rather than making uh, a concerted effort to create same store growth, growth within each uh, asset within their portfolio, um, creating more sophisticated business owners, um, their strategy was less of a focus on creating effective, profitable, efficient businesses and more uh, of a focus on buying more EBITDA in the form of more practices because the capital was there. Is that a good summary? That's exactly that, that's exactly right. It's it's the difference in dots on a map versus same store sales. You know, so you get successful businesses, and there are a lot of them all up and down the the food chain, if you will, of, of group dentistry. Um, there are quite a number that are extremely good operators. I mean, they, you know, can make judicious um, reductions in the expense structure of the businesses. Um, they have a lot of synergies. They can recruit and retain associate doctors. So they get a, a lift in terms of hours and days to expand. They're really good at marketing. Um, some of them are, are common branded, driving mm -hmm. more new patient flow. They can negotiate with insurance companies for preferential reimbursement rates and other revenue lift. They can incorporate specialty services. It's all the business fundamentals that you and I talk about ad nauseum. You know, and, and it's just shocking to think that there are seemingly successful brands that either cannot do that, are not willing to do that, or have forgotten how to do that. And then you have some fly-by-night companies that just say, hey, I have that unlimited pot of, of funds, so to speak, and the cost of debt funds is nothing. And I'm just going to go out and pull the trigger as fast as I possibly can, knowing that there's going to be somebody to pay for it on the flip. And that's how I'm going to make my money on the equity appreciation. When the debt escalates faster than the value of the equity does, that equation runs out of uh, juice really, really fast. You did mention one. I'll, other... I'll say one other thing, Mark. Let me, yeah, I'm sorry to cut you off. Let me say one other thing. This, the reason that this is so important is there, I think there are two reasons. One, people are still, people who are thinking about selling their successful practice or group or small group or something like that are still living in the rearview mirror about an unlimited upside to the business side of dentistry and what people are willing to pay. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, not a sage, but I think that's likely gone, you know? And the other thing is that there are either too many people in the market that are either in the advisory space um, or uh, assumed to be that don't do the necessary diligence on who the buyer is. You know, if you are entrusting me to represent you and transact your life's work, a small group, a solo practice, whatever it is, and you are willing to roll equity, or maybe you're required to roll equity, mm -hmm. to not do the due diligence on who the buyer is 
to the nth degree to understand their cap structure, their debt structure, and really understand their historical record of performance relative to things like same store sales. The only thing you can count on is the cash part of the transaction you just got because the equity may not be there. And that's the okay. sad part to all of it. Okay, I'm gonna, sorry for I'm cutting you off. To, on that. I'm going to once again summarize uh, to make sure that I'm understanding uh, correctly. So, and I agree with you 100%. A lot of times people are are chasing that um, the highest valuation possible, the highest multiple possible. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that and ways that uh, that these firms manipulate to get a higher multiple, but kind of hit you one way or the other if that's if that's their their valuation or their calculation of your EBITDA uh, in order to to say that we gave you a 12 but really they they discounted your EBITDA by 30%. You know, I've seen I've seen that trick several times. But when we're talking about the equity role, I just want to clarify that for everybody. So if you for instance have a practice that is I don't know, let's let's just use round numbers. Just say it's it's got a million dollars in EBITDA. Okay, so this has a million dollars in EBITDA, and just for round numbers, we're getting a 10x. I mean, it's not it's not likely, but you have a million dollars in EBITDA, you got 10x, so you got 10 million dollar valuation on your on your on your operation. the The valuation is going to be split up between a first payment and a second payment, and this mandatory equity role means that you're going to get cash down for a certain percentage of the practice, say 70%, let's just say 70% for own numbers, and your mandatory equity role in certain circumstances would be the remaining 30%. Now, the reason why it's crucial that you understand the buyer, the way that I'm understanding this, the reason why it's crucial that you understand the buyer is because if they are not a serious operator, and you don't agree with their strategy for growth or you're coming in late cycle in their cap uh, late cycle in their cap cycle there's a lot of different um variables that could lead to that remaining 30% not being what it could be had you been with a legitimate operator that that's right that's right in certain it's, circumstances, it's, the 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 equity role could be worth more than the original seventy percent by another multiple, and in some cases, that could in essence be worthless, depending on how your buyer, the investor in your business, runs their business. Is that correct? Yep. Okay. Yep. That's that's right. And I mean, it's look. <laughs> I'm a small business owner too. I, I believe in the value of equity and we've seen some very um, uh, tremendous returns for, for some of our clients with the right buyer and the right strategy and, and the, the right amount of equity role. And, and all too often, a lot of those took what was a, frankly, a lower value deal in mm-hmm. terms of multiple and, and dollar value um, versus one that would have been higher. But the the buy, there was a difference in the two buyers and and one thing you said is is 100% well I'll, I'll, everything you said was correct but one of the things that you said that I'll just drill home on is the stage of the cycle of the buyer are they is it a recently recapped entity and they've got a runway of a couple of years so that whatever the share price that you get just like you and I buy a share of Apple or Google or whatever else you know if it's 100 bucks today 
we hope it's going to be 120 at the end of the year and 200 next year, right? Well, I mean, same thing. If you roll equity into a parent company that's a DSO, you're going to have a share price. And once it recaps, you want to have strong conviction that the operators of that business can realize the returns that we've all talked about and work their magic that yield a higher share price two or three or four X over what it is today when you go into the company. Um, and, and there have been a, quite a number of returns where that has absolutely been the case. There's also been quite a number of those returns where it's been the case off of nothing other than pure aggregation instead of operation. But I think those types of buyers are going to have a lot. Um, uh, it's going to be much more difficult to create those types of historical returns in today's environment. I think it might be worth just kind of a quick summary on the types of buyers that are out there. Um, you have the the established, uh, sophisticated buyer that might not get you an additional three turns on your equity roll, but they could get you a nice return on your equity roll, or at least get you your money in the, the remaining 30%, right? And then there's there's some people that are just now dipping their toe into the 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 dental aggregation world. Um and they may be rookies at it. this might this might be their first rodeo, first and last rodeo, for instance. Um and your your equity role is is questionable at best. Uh, and it's going to come down to luck and maybe a lot of um, a lot of sleepless nights. And then you have people in the middle that are that have been doing this for a bit and they've they've gotten spotty results. So how do we how do we vet these people out? And if if we don't have the knowledge that your firm has or somebody like you has personally, how do we know who the, the right buyer is for our deal? I mean, I, I could sit down at a boardroom table in in my tailored suit and try to look really smart, but they're going to outgun me as far as what they're able to say and what they're able going to be able to convince me to do. And I have a lot of experience doing this. So how do we know? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I would I would say... The answer to that is, and I'm going to try to say this in an objective way that doesn't sound like I'm, um, you know, self-promoting here for for Polaris or anything. But, you know, the questions that we talk about asking buyers are the same that you should be, that dentists should be, business owners should be asking of their of their advisors. Um, you know, compare and contrast the last five or six deals that you've done. Um, what do you think made them successful? When you look for um, uh, you know, a buyer uh, that's the right fit for me. How do you, how do you know what that fit is? What are some of the questions that you ask around their future growth strategy, so that I, as the seller, know that um, the the equity appreciation forecast that's been given has a has a degree of reality to it. You know, I mean, how do we how do we know that they're going to be able to pull this off? Is there a track record of performance in having done that? Um, you know, and and how do they they work their magic, so to speak? They'll be pretty forthcoming by and large, because that's a competitive advantage for most buyers. If the advisor doesn't know to ask the question, if the advisor hasn't worked for a while in the group practice space, um, if they've represented a handful of solo dentists that are, you know, traditional ADA type practices to a um 
a group buyer, that's not a very complicated transaction, honestly. I mean, it kind of only goes one way. But if you have a small group or a large group, you know, and you're looking to to transact that group, it is a much more complicated transaction with a lot of uh, parameters that can affect um, the outcome you get on the second bite of the apple. And if your advisor hasn't done a lot of those transactions, doesn't know the questions to ask, literally, they don't know what they don't know. And you're kind of going on a wing and a prayer at that point. So I think there are a number of quality advisors, you know, we are one, but there are a number of them in this space. It's the same sort of context as looking at when you were comparing and contrasting buyers right there. You said that they're there are entities that that want to get into the dentistry game that have never spent any time here. They've never had a position or a um, a, a company that they've uh, you know originated and then taken taken to market and exited successfully and things like that. But they've seen everybody else that has, and they want to get in too. And if they don't have dentistry experience or healthcare services experience, uh, then you know I don't. I don't know that that's the type of buyer that I'd be willing to dive in on. It would have to take an extreme scenario to create confidence in me for something like that. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So in your experience, including an advisor, who needs to be part of your board of directors, quote unquote, when you are going into this world? So you have one, two or three practices, potentially you want to start acquiring practices so that you can maybe get to market um, and be absorbed by a larger fish, let's just say. Um, Who should we assemble as far as our advisory team? Let's just say that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think if if you're at the early stages of a group practice, you need to work with some type of strategic advisor that can connect your current business to the exit that you intend mm. in the time frame that you desire. Okay. All right. And this is this is one that's critically important because having the consulting side of our business the way that we do, and that's really the side of the business that I work on more. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, leads more of our sell side advisory. I know enough to be dangerous, but um so, you know, when we're when we're talking about building a business, um, if you come to me with three locations and, uh, you know, $500,000 worth of EBITDA and you say, well, parent, I want to build a business that I can exit and put $20 million in the bank after debt service, after taxes, after an equity role and after advisor fees. And I want to do that in five years. I might kind of look at you and say, Mark, I want to do that too, but that's not realistic because if I connect the numbers back to where your exit number is versus where your EBITDA is right now, you very well may have to acquire five practices per year, every year for five years to generate an EBITDA volume to yield that. Mm-hmm. And at three practices, you haven't cut your teeth enough for me to say that's likely to happen. And furthermore, I would advise against it. So mm-hmm. you want to have, if you have an exit intention, um however whatever the exit intention is let's quantify it to the best of our ability let's really dig into what the numbers are and what you think you want on an exit let's connect the numbers back 
two activities that we have to do, usually practice acquisitions, between that five-year period and what you have today. And let's get clear on what all that means and what those five years are going to look like. Uh, and, and if that doesn't sound either realistic, then is the exit number too big or is the time frame too short? Mm-hmm. Or is it a combination of both? You know, but let's get let's let's have a little dose of reality and humility about what our actual abilities as operators are so that we don't build a mess. You know, the next thing is you're probably going to need to restructure the business from a legal construct standpoint. You're more than likely going to bring in some levels of minority partners, whether it's through acquisition or associates becoming owners in the business, or maybe you maybe you have a partner right now or something. So there's probably going to be a, a, a restructure of the legal constructs of the business. There's also probably going to be some level of restructure from um, an accounting standpoint a cash to accrual conversion, a management company with cost center allocations and a management services agreement, and all that type of heavy lifting that costs a lot of money and is not any fun. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to build it the right way and have that type of exit, you're you're more than likely going to need to do that. So let's find a law firm, let's find an accounting firm that knows what they're doing and can be in sync with one another. Ideally, those two firms have worked together before Yes, because it is a collaborative event. Mm-hmm. The last couple of things I'll say is around uh, a leadership team. You mentioned like board of advisors. I'm I'm not even thinking board level here. I'm thinking like operators in the business. Certainly there's the visionary that's usually the founder. That's the person that has the exit strategy and knows what they want to do. Secondary to that, you have to have somebody who's going to um, recruit associates and develop them and minim- ideally minimize turnover. A chief dental officer, chief clinical officer, director of clinical development, whatever you want to call them, somebody that sits in that seat is mission critical and its importance. You're going to have some level of a director of business development, somebody that finds practices to acquire, breaks the ice with the the current owner, asks about what their transition strategy is, and buys a lot of steak dinners. That person is really, really important. The last thing is you need an operator, like a, a a COO or a director of operations or somebody that's not clinical operations, but the administrative operations side of the business. And on your leadership team, if you can solve the chief dental officer, the director of business development and call it a COO, along with the visionary, that's your four seat leadership team in terms of operations. Got it. That's great. That was a great, succinct answer. And I appreciate that. Um, I think that a lot of times people try to fill a lot of those board seats by themselves and um, in an effort to save a little bit of time, uh, a little bit of money, and that could be some of the most expensive um, seats uh, that were left vacant or that you tried to fill on your own. Uh, That's one of the big, big problems I see, people trying to do too much of this on their own without the appropriate advisors in place. The stakes are just too high. They're too high to to try to do it alone. Um, all right. So you and I last year co-hosted an event called Scaling from Clinician to CEO. It was uh, wildly successful. It was in uh, Denver, Colorado, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Purposely kept it intimate, under 150 people, and we're doing it again this year. Um, I would love it if you could just kind of 
tell people what it's all about, what we will be talking about, and and who is the ideal uh, attendee for this event. Yeah, I love to, and I, I share your sentiments around last year. It was uh, it was both fun um, and an educational deep dive. We've got um, tremendous net promoter scores back on it, and the the accolades that we got from the audience were were really uh, were really tremendous. Um, this year, it's in Scottsdale at the Phoenician. The dates are October 11th through 13th. That's a Wednesday through Friday. Wednesday is a travel day with a cocktail party and registration. The meat of the matter is on Thursday and Friday um, in Scottsdale. We can give you all the hyperlinks to that and everything, obviously. You know, but the target audience is really those that are, um, uh, you know, in the one to five location range. And um, uh, it's somebody who wants to build a group practice. Um, and they are, they don't know what they don't know. They've built a successful practice more than likely. Um, and they are looking to add additional locations, but they ha- they probably haven't stepped on a landmine yet. One of the biggest challenges they're going to encounter, uh, is actually scaling from clinician to CEO. So how do you transition from a, a predominantly clinical role into more, uh, of a leadership role? I mean, how do you do that without taking an income hit first and foremost? How do you do it effectively? And then when you free up time to become a, a CEO and a leader of the business, what does is, what is the, the CEO of a five location group do? Like, where do they spend their time? What, what it, what's involved in all of that? So take you through a lot of that. There's systemization and calibration, one of your presentations that I absolutely love. Like, how do you do that in multiple locations when you can't be everywhere at once? How do you scale culture? There's the doctor development piece. There's structural pieces from a legal structure, accounting structure, and ownership structure. There's the how do we attract and retain associates piece. Bank funding. The dirty secret to all of these groups is that bank funding is the Achilles heel of all of them. And if not done correctly, it will absolutely grind your growth strategy to a halt because you will ultimately run out of available capital because subordinated debt risk to banks is a point where they're not willing to take the risk. Mm -hmm. And if you're playing that game and you've got six locations funded by three different banks, it's akin to musical chairs. I call it musical banks for a reason. So Mm -hmm. how do we use bank funding appropriately that validates our growth strategy and allows us to build the business we want and not be forced to bring on a private equity partner until we want to? And there'll be two different personal journeys, one on the exit process uh, from a couple of clients we represented and one on the um, uh, growth capital solution using bank funds appropriately to kind of validate those stories. So it's a lot of material in, you know, a day and a half time. Um, the thing I love about you that I think we work so well together on is that you don't tend to, to pull any punches as it relates to hiding details and we don't either. <laughs> so mm-hmm. if people really want to come and learn, uh, you know, have key takeaways and know what they need to apply when they get back home on Monday, this is the conference for them. If, on the other hand, if they're looking for, you know, an opportunity to, to drink scotch in the bar and listen to yet another panel of experts with no applicability, this ain't your conference, man. Um, it is all about application and, and granular detail. And I think that's what made it so great last year. Well, thank you for that summary. Incredible summary. And, you know, not to take anything away from any other events, but I do have to say that you can have extremely qualified people in the wrong setting 
um, and you are unable to pull the value from that person because they're sitting on a panel and the panelist potentially is just asking very, very surface level, level questions. I've seen panels of, of uh, very, very high level DSO CEOs and didn't learn a thing because of the, <laughs> because of the format and because of the questions that were asked. And I just wanted to jump up and say, I have five questions and I'm, I want each of you to just t- take one of them individually so I can feel like I'm going to learn something. But um, yeah, the, the, uh, this is not that type of conference. We're going to go very, very in depth with a lot of detail, a lot of tactical stuff um, and a lot of really great experts in their, in their sub niche uh, of this whole process. So um, I can't wait. Uh, once again, is there a landing page or a website? Did you already mention it? There, there is. We'll get you the hyperlinks from that. They, you can uh, connect to it off of our website. It loads almost automatically. That's polarishealthcarepartners.com. Um, and it'll pop up. Uh, you can find it under the events section too. And then we will get, um, uh, I think we've already gotten some of your team the link for that to uh, run through the uh, workplace feeds that you all have and get you the other um, assets that you need as well. Registration is open. Um, we are gonna cap it at 150 this year. Uh, there are still seats available. We expect it to sell out, but we wanna, you know, again, we wanna keep it kind of intimate where we can feel like we all we we can all interact together and you don't get lost in the sea of, of humanity. So, I mean, I think it's gonna be very nice from that aspect too, so. Yeah, and um, if you you're get much better than the Phoenician and Scottsdale, especially uh, <laughs> October. It's just pretty yeah. much the ideal place to be, I think. Uh, right now, Scottsdale, yeah. my favorite place at 114 degrees. But October in Scottsdale, we're talking about a balmy 85 degrees, zero humidity, sunshine all the time. So great, uh, great place yeah. to grab a round of golf and to, to learn a lot about um, scaling up. So hope to see yeah, you guys there. Uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, for those that are, uh, I call it mid-career or younger, whatever that means. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna be in the practice of dentistry as a business owner for ten to fifteen years or more, I think you owe it to yourself to consider possibly building a group practice. If and I don't mean like a hundred locations. I mean just a business that's bigger than you yourself. And the reason for that is it's getting so hard to run a small business of any sort. I mean, you saw the ADA statistics about the increase in expenses of like 7.7%, but the revenue only went up 2.2%. They had that statistic all over the web recently. And you know that rising cost environment with kind of a lid on uh, revenue is a re- is a very real phenomenon and that hits a business owner right in his or her back pocket and if you can build a reasonably sized group three to five locations maybe you can derive a lot of passive income out of it and build a business that's not dependent upon you and your own clinical skill set and i think there's there's a lot of merit to that kind of thought process and, and fact finding so hopefully people will uh uh will, will get what they need in scottsdale love it well, buddy, I'll let you get to your family. I know it's dinner time on the East Coast. I really appreciate your time as always. Um, hope to see you guys at the Scaling from Clinician to CEO event in the Phoenician, uh, October 11th and 12th. Did I get that right? 11th through 13th. Yeah, oh, yeah. 11th is a Wednesday, a travel day. It's 12th and 13th is the meat of the matter, as I like to say. All right, my friend. Thank you so much for being here. Always dropping knowledge bombs. We're, we're so grateful to have you as part of the collaborative team that that uh, 
that consistently bring value to the Dentalpreneur podcast. And we will talk to you soon. Thanks for having me, Mark. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Perrin Desports. Well, I hope you all found that to be a wide-ranging tour of information, uh, current events, and a whole heck of a lot more. And I really appreciate, uh, Mark, uh, for allowing us to run the feed through our channel to get it to all of you. I also hope that many of you are considering joining us in Scottsdale. This was a tremendous conference that we hosted last year in Denver, uh, and the feedback uh, was, was absolutely off the charts from those who did attend. We're looking forward to an equally good uh, session in October. And let's face it, the Phoenician is a wonderful resort, and Scottsdale in October is a beautiful time of year to be there. If you are interested in joining us, registration is open. There are still seats available, but we expect the conference to sell out. Registrations have picked up every week over the last couple of weeks, so I think we're probably going to get there. You can find out more about it on our website at www.polarishealthcarepartners.com. And certainly if you've got any questions around what Dr. Costas and I dove into today, uh, or any other topics that are top of mind, you can always email me directly at perrin at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.